Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here in the studio theater. I actually, besides working for the city paper, which I got fired from, uh, by Jack Schaefer. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. You helped my career immensely. Um, you remember him. Uh, he's still around. Um, I, I worked for John McLaughlin, too, the TV show. So I've worked in television. Uh, I am so glad he's dead, as I've always said. Um, but uh, I worked, I wrote, I wrote for that show, the McLaughlin Group, which I think really ruined it. It created a modern cable. It was the beginning of hateful speech online, online and on television. Um, so I learned at the, ma- at the foot of the master. Um, but I'm glad to be back in Washington. I work for the Washington Post. I actually delivered mail for the Washington Post. And later people who I delivered mail for worked for me, which was kind of interesting. Um, but I, I love Washington, D.C. I love coming here. Um, I become 100% sexier here. Uh, <laughs> so that's always good. Um, and I do. I love Washington. I went to Georgetown University. I went to the Foreign Service School. Uh, I wanted to become a spy. I actually still might be a spy. Uh, it would be the longest con in history. Um, but I'm really excited to talk uh, to my friends from NBC News. I also do, besides uh, working at Recode and Vox, I, I write sometimes for a newspaper, a fake newspaper uh, called the New York Times. But I also, one of my favorite things, boo, don't boo the New York Times. <laughs> Not for me. Um, and I, but I have a great relationship with, and so does Vox, with NBC News. And one of the things we do, we're doing these substantive shows about the future of the future, essentially. Um, but one of the things that I get the pleasure of is spending a lot of time with the NBC News uh, staff. And they're an amazing group of people. Oh, oh, what was that? Someone's watching me. That was my voice. <laughs> that was Mark Benioff, who's like 400 feet taller than me. Um, we're, we have some really good uh, shows coming up. We have one, I'm going to do one with Kim Kardashian and her mom. Uh, we're going to do one, hopefully, with Mary Barra. We've got a whole bunch coming up that we're going to do to try to sort of give some substance to a lot of things. But So substantive discussions are what we're looking for. Um, not to NBC News. No, NBC News is very substantive. Um, so I want to talk, have this substantive discussion on this podcast. Um, I usually interview techies like Mark Zuckerberg, which is always a mistake when he gets on stage with me, or Elon, Elon Musk, or various people. Cheryl Sandberg, who's not having the best week. Um, we're going to talk about that more. But these are three people I have admired forever. Um, and uh, I've had Chuck on the podcast. Uh, on, uh, Andrea Mitchell is, I was just telling you, is the hardest working, uh, hardest working journalist in, in, that I know of. Um, and Hallie Jackson, uh, who also has a great show on, uh, on MSNBC and everything else. Come on out, you three. And we're going to have a great discussion. 
Hey. Oh, it's. I think we're inside the actor's studio. We are. <laughs> so, Chuck. Let's let's. How did you consider the part? No. Yes, exactly. um, so I want to get started right away. Uh, obviously, there's. Wait, I actually have a treat for everybody. Uh, where is it? Right here. Okay. Uh, Vox, in an attempt to get me to quit, uh, bought me a Facebook portal the other day. <laughs> As you see, it is not opened. It remains unopened. open. I still think it's dangerous. So I got angry at Fox the other night. Yeah. Oh, Fox. really? Fox. I'm okay. watching Fox yeah. Thursday night football. And they did this ridiculous three-minute, like, infomercial yeah. on Portal with Howie Long and Terry Bradshaw. And they thought it was funny. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, why in the hell would I ever buy this product? All right. Well... <laughs> How funny, because I was going to give it... Did I say it that loud? I, I was going to... sorry, Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I guess I ain't getting any freebies from you. Okay, but I was actually going to give it to you, uh, Chuck, but that's okay. Holly <laughs> was telling me how much so you wanted So the person that asked the worst question tonight is going to get this. Um, so... So anyway, uh, I wanted to bring it out because this the, you can watch NBC News on it. You can do a lot of things on this. Um, and I wanted to first talk about tech because I do a tech. I write a lot about tech, but we want to get to the to the administration about the elections and all kinds of things and about the the impact of cable news and news on all of this because I think right now social media is getting sort of its fair share of criticism and deserve it. Um, so let's start with that, and then I do want to talk about what cable does, what 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 news reporters do, and where the press is. So why don't I just what what are your thoughts, each of you, on what's happened with Facebook? Because it's been, become an integral part of your coverage now. Um, same thing with Twitter, with Trump. Today he made the Dow drop hundreds of points because he called himself Tariff Man uh, on Twitter, which if you can believe... No, I'm serious. It dropped because he called himself Tariff Man. So why don't each of you sort of talk about what you think about the impact of it's been on, on, on our country and where you think we are right now. Chuck, do you want to start? Well, social media has somehow made cable news seem in depth. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so thank you, social media. <laughs> it's a low bar, Chuck. Yeah, Go ahead. I'm aware of that. Look, it is, I, I think we're, we still haven't fully gone through it. I think the part we haven't fully grasped is how Facebook has replaced the local newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of this that I think is, is, is sort of, what I mean by this is what? The, I think the biggest problem of, of, of the media's relationship with Americans is the loss of the newspaper on the doorstep. The newspaper on the doorstep was a collective thing in every community. Everybody got the newspaper. Everybody got the newspaper. And so there was this collective place that you got news, collective place that you got your facts. And local media in many ways made us, gave us in national media the, the credibility. Because your local paper, you figure, well, those people, and you know, it, you just sort of connected it all. And now that Facebook has replaced the local newspaper. I think that's the part of this we still, you talk about the importance of Facebook in our coverage. In some ways, we still haven't figured out how to incorporate Facebook in our coverage in, order, in, in that we still haven't fully grasped how influential Facebook is mm -hmm. on the day-to-day -day with voters over the age of 50. And that's what's, I mean, and that's the demographic we're talking about here. Right. I mean, I also believe that one of the things that probably many of our colleagues don't realize is that nobody under the age of 50 is on Facebook anymore. Right, right. Um, right. You know. Uh, Chuck, backstage, I haven't used Facebook in probably three years, personally. Mm -hmm. Professionally, we have somebody that sort of keeps the page alive for the links and all that, but it, I think that's totally No, right. I mean, my, look. You, you use what? 
So I do use Instagram. Which is owned by Facebook. You've really stuck it to Facebook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Less about the corporate overlord piece of it and sort of more about the way that people use Facebook and interact on Facebook. Because what I hear from like my friends and my peers is that it's just devolved into like this hellhole cesspool of hate and division, right? And like okay. anybody who's on Facebook probably sees that. Who has not had or seen a fa I got a screen grab of a Facebook fight my best friend was in like two days ago. And that happens every week, right? And so I've sort of removed myself from that pool a little bit to Chuck's point and care to your question. Listen, I don't think we've grasped that from a political right. reporting perspective what exactly happened with Facebook two years ago, right? Much less in the midterms, much less what's gonna happen in less than two years from now in 2020. And I think that part of it, Kara, is what we see when we look, I, I cover politics, not tech, but tech reporters are doing kind of this yeoman's work of uncovering what did these guys know and when did they know it? And more importantly, where's the transparency and how do they fix it? And I'm not sure that the companies have a handle on it, which sure, sure, sure as heck means that we as media reporters and people who are in the media are still, I think, grappling with that too. And I think when I was interviewing recently uh, Kathleen Hall Jamison mm -hmm. from Penn, media critic from the Edinburgh School uh, about her new book, Cyber Wars. And she has a really interesting for forensic study of the impact of social media and of the Russian intrusion. Mm -hmm. And she can track it to pr prove pretty conclusively, and you can't disaggregate what caused the election to go one way or the other, really. But there's a lot of data mm -hmm. that she has accumulated in a, in a really responsible way to look at the last, well, I would say the time after the WikiLeaks dump after Access Hollywood, then the debate that a couple of days later, it was you know, exactly what happened between the second and third debate. How the Russians influenced the questions who were asked by strong, credible moderators, but who were influenced by the dialogue that they were picking up from social media without even realizing it, mm -hmm. and how that may well have influenced the outcome. Did you all understand it during covering the last election? Think about the last election, because about um, right after the election, I actually called Mark and Cheryl, and I said, this is serious. This, something has happened here. I don't know what it is, but you need to take it seriously. And they're like, well, it wasn't as impactful. You know, they had that line. You know, Mark first said it was crazy, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then, he, then they said, okay, it's 5%, okay, it's 5,000, and then it went on and on and on. Eventually, he's going to say Vladimir Putin did found Facebook. Yes. Okay. I mean, like, at some point, right, we're going to get all the way to there. Um, but what, 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 did you all grok it at the time when you were covering, let's go to the last election. How did you look at it? Do you, what, what, well, what are the mistakes you all made that you didn't see that this was happening? Well, in fact, I did not. And it was afterwards, it was two weeks after the election, when I and Dan Balls from the Washington Post were doing the wrap-up session at Harvard, the traditional post-election, mm -hmm. you know, autopsy, and we had both teams facing off against each other. And at one point, um, the Trump people, they were, they were really uh, triumphant mm -hmm. and, in, in, and not gracious at all. Well, I call them and, sore winners, but go You know, ahead. unlike past elections where I've been through this process, where both sides tried to heal some wounds, there was none of that. And there was a, the, the Clinton people were still in shock and uh, breaking into tears at one point, and the Trump people were hardly gracious. Mm -hmm. And at one point, um, Brad Pascal said, this is the Trump campaign. The Trump digital cam person. The digital person. Who will be the campaign manager. Manager. And uh, that, Trump you know, and was with now, Cambridge yeah. Analytics and all of that and worked so closely with Jared. And so 
at one point, Mandy Grunewald, who had done the media for Hillary, because they were arguing over who had more storefronts, and the Trump people said, we didn't need storefronts, we had social media, we didn't need volunteers, you had the wrong metrics. And at one point, towards the end of this really intense three-hour emotional session, Mandy Grunewald, who did the traditional media for Hillary Clinton and has for decades, said, you really gaslighted her, didn't you? And Brad Parscale said, yes, and you never saw it coming, mm -hmm. and grinned, mm -hmm. rather than being chagrined or... So you, and it was a, quite a moment, but I mean, there was this whole subterranean social media campaign that we never saw. But Kara, to answer your question, did we, you know... I knew the gaslighting was out there. I knew it was every day. Mm -hmm. But I think there was... Part of me in my head assumed people were discerning it out, mm. knew the BS from the non-BS. Right. So I think what my sort of shock to the system is just how gullible um, a big chunk of the country was to this. And gullible because maybe they want to be gullible. And it was also, look, you can't separate the fact that the Clintons weren't very popular. Mm -hmm. So people wanted to believe the worst about them and they own some of that on themselves, right? Why do people want to think the worst about them? They, you got to ask, when right. people want to think the worst about you, you got to ask yourself, why is that? You right. need to look in the mirror. So I don't, like, I think it's, you know, I do think that I wouldn't sit here and say, oh, it's just all Facebook's problem, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's the thing. It was the, the want. It was like people wanted to believe the worst about all of us, us in the press. Look, the most disconcerting thing is when I saw my wife's email show up, it was my wife's email that showed up in WikiLeaks mm -hmm. of all the things, a personal email she had sent to, to, to somebody that, that she's personal friends with and it, was for, and, and it shows up, it was for uh, a small little dinner at our house and it becomes this like giant fundraiser apparently that I threw up my house for Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't, it was none of it, it wasn't even remotely true. Nobody at the place was, there wasn't even a campaign at the time, but it was just, literally a couple of couples that showed up at the house. Um, but that's when it was like, oh my God, like this is in... You didn't it's recognize so, the strength, the yes. strength, the, the strength. Of it was so it out of the tube, you realize, right. boy, this is hard to fight. You and can't just fight this back one like, response Not even knowing time. about it. You know, let me just say that I, I was uh, two or three weeks ago out at Facebook and at Stanford mm -hmm. for a trilateral commission meeting. Okay, so the bet, you know. Wait a minute, trilateral commission. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, I'm putting of that out there. Of course she's at the trilateral commission, Andrea. It was, it was so an George academic. George Soros was running it, but go ahead. It, right, and this has been, it, well, it, this has been written. I thought the Queen of England ran the trilateral commission. Yes, yeah. and the Rockefellers, and aside from Soros. But the fact is, there were a lot of people there. We, were at, we then went to Stanford. And Nick Kristof has written about this in the New York Times, interviewing people separately, so I'm not violating any rules. Nate Persley from Stanford, Stanford Law, said that one of the problems that you all, we all have, is that the fact-checking is not catching up with the tweets, with the false statements. Right. So I think I'm being virtuous by insisting on my show on MSNBC that we go on and we say, President Trump said this today about China, about tariffs, whatever. Mm -hmm. However, it's not true, or about the wall, or about the Saudi arms deals. Mm -hmm. You know, we've gotten, you know, $450 billion. Well, no, in fact, it's been, you know, $15 billion. So we do all this fact-checking, and I always use it in the same sentence. And he said the reality from their studies at Stanford Law are that 
the fact-checking never catches up with the headline. Right. So we are only you know, amplifying the false statements and the reality never catches up. So how do we deal with that? And I'm still trying to come to grips with so that. So how do you like that? Because what you do say, there was a, story, there was a tweet today about a, this is the most exasperated story AP has had because they corrected seven misstatements or lies, essentially lies. And it took forever for you all to call it lies, which was fascinating in a lot of ways. But Helen, when you think about covering that, like you started off, there was a traditional way of covering politics where there was a lot of insiders and sources said, but it was usually like James Carville probably or something like that. But there was a way of, it was always James Carville. Um, but there was a way of doing it. How do you look only, at it Only now? if it was colorful. Oh, yeah, right. So there's a lot to it, right? Because I didn't come into this from like a perspective of having done years and years as an embed in a campaign, et cetera. I kind of got dropped into 100 Republicans running for president in the summer of 2015. Turns into, now I cover the White House full time, right? Um, so so I, I don't, I'm not steep in sort of that traditional background, but one of the things that's been striking, Andrew, you talk about the fact checks, you talk about the headlines. There's a way to avoid those problems. There's a way to do a headline that doesn't just amplify an incorrect statement, right? Some organizations, and I think NBC among them, has done a really have done a really good job on that. I think there are others who can try to catch up, and each of us personally can try to catch up in that, right? Of trying to incorporate a fact check into whatever you're talking about that Donald Trump just said. Here's the flip side, though. From my experience on the ground, right, talking to people uh, traveling, for example, this last midterm swings, the fact checks in some instances just don't matter because people will look at you and you'll go, yeah, but you know what he means, right? I, I, yeah. That's it. They don't care if the details are wrong, do they? No, that's, I mean, uh, uh, because oh, the they, they feel like there, they understand. The sentiment's right. there. That's right. all they care about. So talk about, because you all get dragged into it too and you also are participants. And you're, you're all very heavy tweeters, for example. Uh, all of you, which is interesting. I actually stepped back a lot from Twitter recently. Have I, I haven't made like a big grand declaration about it because I'm still doing it and still on it. But right. I think that, um, I found that in a weird way, Kara, like my mental health mm -hmm. is just better. <laughs> and I think Twitter right. can be really useful for a lot of reasons. It's also um, a place that sometimes feels feels really sucky. Right. Can I give so. Twitter some credit though? They, they are trying with a few, a few power users, because I've, I've taken a step back myself, and they reached out. Right. And, and they said, what can we do to make it better? Right. What do you hate the most about it? <laughs> no, 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 no. And they did clean up some things. They, they, gave, they gave me some tips on how to clean What's, up some What is things. a heavy hitter? How many followers do you have? Just curious. Two million. Oh, you're close to me. Okay, mm. good. Mm. Uh, so. no, it's not. I don't know if that's a lot anymore. No, it's a lot. Yeah. No, I don't mean that. But um, my point was, I give them, Twitter knows it has a problem, right. even if they haven't fully figured out how to do it, or even fully fess up into how bad right. the problem is. Facebook doesn't even admit fully that they have a right. problem. So how do you so all I will look, say that. That to me is the biggest difference between the two. Let's, how do you all think about coverage now? What, how do you look at coverage? You've been doing a stand-up video thing forever, all of you. Like, what, how do you think of your job? And then I want to get into how Trump uses Twitter, because just again, everything, he's used it. I think he's literally the best troll, Twitter troll in history at this point. He really is. Like, you have to give him credit for being just awful and fantastic at being awful on Twitter. And it works for him, and I think it's, it creates a, a, um, a complete uh, instant relationship with someone, with, with, with his voters. It's his speech. He loves the New York Post. Yeah. He loves the 200-word right story. Not the 10,000-word story. Right. And, what is, and Twitter's even better. Right, right, I mean, exactly. Try to talk into the microphone. You were, you're, sorry. You're, you're I'm just, person. I'm trying to make it really hard for her to put something <laughs> on the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> my, my, our PR person's going, that's brilliant. <laughs> Say the harshest thing. 
Um, <laughs> we catch it all. We've got Portal. Yeah, right yeah, no, no. I've got Portal working. No, it, it works through my, the box. <laughs> we're all going to be stuck with Portals. Uh, uh, Never-ending Portal. I'm glad you enjoyed your lunch today, Portal. I Don't do think that, that, that that is... Twitter was built for Trump's brain. Right. I want to get to that. How do you beyond. all... How do you all... Get, what's your relationship, Andrea? Well... As, I as a reporter, I, I enjoy as it as a reporter because it's it's a wire service. It's a tip sheet. It's interesting stuff that other people are reporting that I can check out. Uh, we don't just retweet anything that we don't know to be true. Mm -hmm. You know, I try not to be snarky. Um, try to control myself so that the PR people at NBC don't get on my back. But I let people know... I have to say you're increasingly snarky, just so you know I follow you. <laughs> just slowly. Well, how, that's a subjective... It's you and Maggie Haberman, suddenly you're like... Do you know we were born on the same day? Were, were you? The same birthday, so it's all yeah. astrological yeah. with us. You know... This the, is terrifying, Kara. What are you going to say next? I don't know. <laughs> the the fact sure. is, it's a great way, I think, to communicate with the people who follow my show or my viewers to let right. people know because we're in the middle of the day we have to let people know because they're all busy and you know we're not one of the shows because we have so much breaking news in our first of all the president gets up and has his intel briefing at 11:30 compared to many of his predecessors who would do it like <laughs> 6 or 7 in the morning so he's up and about at noon he's ready to go he's having a cabinet meeting he might have a photo opportunity he might start doing a gaggle with Hallie well that interrupts everything that i have programmed so chuck tonight had great guests today i had you know great guests on my show we're very involved in a lot of breaking news and a lot of stuff on Khashoggi and China, China, and, yeah. and obviously Roger the, this, you know, what's happening with, you know, with George Herbert Walker Bush. Yes, right. We all oh, yes. covered. Yeah. So that's another yeah. big part of what's going on this week. But my show is the most frequently interrupted, and Hallie's to a lesser extent because he's still upstairs tweeting, isn't he? At ten in the morning, Eastern. Yeah, I mean, but that's so, one of. The, but you know, so so it's changed know, so the way Twitter you've covered news. Does help let people know, hey, I've got something big coming up. Or but has I've got it a changed? Really big through, have you gotten twitchy in the way you cover things? Do you feel twitchy? Well, I, I think feel we're all. Is real I mean, I don't stop looking at that screen when I should, and that's a problem. But also for emails. I mean, because we're all reacting to so many internal notes. You know, they're telling Hallie and me and others who are covering the day-to-day -day stuff, hey, such and such has just broken, check it out. I mean, constantly. Our internal emails are, are, are just as busy as a Twitter feed would be. And it's So now we also have our own Twitter feed longer. that we're following on the outside, and then we have all the information we're sharing. So we are constantly, we say what's changed, it feels like we're constantly in receive mode. And are you on Slack also? The problem, I don't, I refuse to be on Slack because I don't need another goddamn thing to start checking. <laughs> But I wish, but I wish I were. And there's a few of our internal Slack channels that I, w I worry if I got in them, I'd never get out. I see, <laughs> like the college football one, perhaps. No, well, there's one on. No, well, it's our professional ones. That stuff I would leave. Basketball. Basketball. I, will say I this. keep there, my gambling Hallie, set from Hallie, a good to a new game of, <laughs> It's the Game of Thrones fantasy for Slack. But That's go ahead. probably. Um, yeah, listen, I do think to to your question, Kara, and to Andrew's discussion about getting twitchy, right? Yeah. I think there is sometimes this theory of like the shiny object distraction. And you'll hear that sometimes when there's a big story happening over here and the president tweets about another big story, right? There's story A, he tweets about story B. And there's a, I think, divergence of thought. Do you still stay on story A? That's a big and important story. But the president's, you know, don't get distracted by story B. 
Story B can also be a really big and important story, right? We can have a lot of really big and important stories all at once that are worthy of coverage and that should be covered. And I don't know that every tweet that President Trump, for example, sends out is like a methodically thought through thing saying, let me distract, well, let me finish my sentence, <laughs> saying, let me distract from this story that I'm seeing on cable. I, I, I don't know that that's true all it, the time. I think he actually does it by nature. I think he is exactly doing that to you all. Like, I think it oh, creates yeah. a, it creates a, like a, a constant distraction. But for him, it's boredom. Exactly. It's to get rid of boredom. It, right. He himself said, like, why didn't he want to campaign in the economy? That's boring. Right, right. And Don't, so he tweets things that he find interest, finds interesting in the moment. And mm -hmm. I do think, like, you talk about the role of Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's all of those things that Andrew talked about. It's kind of a wire service. It's a place to go to get information and read interesting stories. It's also a bubble. And people have to remember that. That's not a reflection of, like, actual America. It's just not. But the value in Twitter is that Donald Trump loves it and uses it. And like no other president, it's a window into his thinking. Can I just tell you, this is a reality check that I try to remind ourselves internally every once in a while. We do, we ask regularly in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll about once a quarter. Um, if you use social media, what is your preferred site or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, Twitter is less than 10%. Twitter is less than 10%. It's literally less than one in 10 people. Mm -hmm. um, it is opinion elite, okay? Either the consumers of opinion elite or the delivers of opinion elite, but in some ways it's self-selective. Well, we're circulating it with- We are circulating in a his. way that, that's, but, but Facebook is for the masses. Mm -hmm. uh, Instagram is for the masses. I mean, one of the things that I think we are doing a, we probably should be off of Twitter less for sentiment. Twitter to me is an informational portal and that's it. And we need to be reminding ourselves of that because of how actually but small the circle is of Twitter users. I recently had, uh, very recently had a morning rundown meeting with my team, half of, most of whom are in New York, some are here, and we're doing a rundown meeting and one of our segment producers said, and the president's tweets today, and I said, let's just take a break. Take a deep breath, unless it's really important don't even tell me about it. I don't want to write it into my first block. Let's script around that and think about this, this, and this, which is really important today. And so everybody backed off, and sometimes I have to realize the effect of the anchor saying, you know, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. And so I was busy. I was getting ready to get on the air, and I didn't notice something that he had done that actually was provocative to the point of it needed to be reported. Which one was that? I'm sorry. Well, it was, <laughs> frankly, it was the one with Rod Rosenstein behind the bars. Right, right. Because I had heard it, but I didn't visualize right. it because I was racing around and so driving what, to the hill. What is, I and so then I said, hey, wait a second, when did that break? And they said, well, right before you told us you didn't want to hear about it. Sweet. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups. 
You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. So what does that do? I want to get off this and then I want to talk a little bit about the politics and how it impacts politics, te- technology, and what should happen in the next election. But how does it impact your news coverage? How do you, do you, have you rethought what you should do going oh, forward? So talk to me very, each of you, Holly, why don't you start? What should you do going forward that you aren't doing? Because, um, you know, it is what it is. We are in the oxygen. We are in the environment right. we are in. How, how do you look at moving forward? As it relates to Twitter, as it relates as to the president, to all just generally. Because what it creates, what I'm saying, Twitch, it creates a non-thoughtful right. ab- ab- ability yeah. to do your job. So let me answer that question by giving an example of something that we do on our show, a segment that we call Swamp Watch, which started mm-hmm. because the president, when I was on the campaign trail, talked a lot about draining the swamp. And there have been, as you guys might know, some ethics scandals for members of his cabinet. Mm-hmm. Right. And those often fly under the radar. They're not particularly super sexy in the way that I think some execs think like a Russia story. You know, they're important stories that sometimes are a little bit boring, but that are still important. And so we have a segment that we bring up as often as we can called Swamp Watch, where we talk about the latest inspector general's report on the interior department of Ryan Zinke. Like, your eyes should not be glazing over because it's actually an important thing um, to talk about as it relates to him. And there's different pieces like that that we try to do to make sure that on cable, right, which is a fast and furious on for all of us, seven hours, right, straight mm-hmm. through dayside. Um, we're trying to get some of those stories that do fly under the radar sometimes. I do think it's worth noting as we talk about, I think, cable, you know, each, the three of us all have shows at MSNBC and all of us regularly report for NBC news programs, including the Today Show, Nightly News, and obviously, I don't know if you know that Chuck does meet the press. Um, and so, <laughs> and, but so I think we are examples of, of folks who are trying to bridge that gap between cable, which is its own environment, and then the network side, which is a very different environment, both important and both with viewers that want smart, thoughtful, you know, on-point analysis, just in different formats. And one of the things that I think we have to do less of, and that we should not have done in 2016, and I've been very vocal about this, is carry his rallies live. Um, You know... We have the ability to turn something if he makes news, but we should not just have these stream of consciousness rallies that take up all the oxygen and that squeeze out any other political coverage. Not even Fox is doing that anymore. And that's one thing that's different. And that we should take a deep breath and not jump every time he opens his mouth or hits, you know, the Twitter machine. I think we have to be editors and curators even in live broadcasting, yeah, and that's what I—that's what I I've been trying to do. I think that's been abrogated by the press. It's just—it's—it's. It's, I, I always say, what, you know, they were covering Peter Thiel recently, and and the, I, I, I did a live blog where I said what he was actually saying when he was speaking, and everyone else I thought was typing, just typing what he was saying and repeating. Is that what? Right. I would say the biggest philosophical change I've had in my own in, in my own approach to this is just say what you see. Don't try to. Um, don't try to. Um, offer nuance based on previous experience, which is what I did for 25 years. Right. In some ways, you know, historical perspective mattered. How these things happened in the past mattered. They don't now. They should. We can have that debate. But just say what you see in the moment. The president is tweeting like crazy about the Mueller probe. 
don't say what, what, how he's tweeting about it. He's going, he did a series of six tweets. He's obviously nervous about it today. Mm-hmm. You can report on his tweets without actually reporting the, the sort of the mis, the mis uh, statements and repeating the misstatements. But I think it is our job to, to I've been, and look, I, I, I joke that every day in our staff meeting, whether it's our daily staff meeting or our weekly staff meeting, we have a debate, are we overreacting or underreacting to Trump today? And I sometimes think we, particularly on the Mueller probe and some of the things, I think we can simultaneously both over and underreact. We overreact to the wrong part of the Mueller probe and then we underreact to some of the obstruction in plain sight aspects of things. And I also think that we have to just be smarter about a lot of stuff. The China trade war, and you saw the markets today, is a case in point. And Hallie was all over this because she was the pooler on Air Force One when he was bragging about his achievements. But what we have to do is look at Beijing's reaction, look at the fact that he appointed Bob Lighthizer, the most strident uh, trade warrior, pro-tariff guy of the three people in his universe, even tougher than Navarro and certainly tougher than Mnuchin, who ought to be doing this, arguably, and see what the there there is. Fentanyl is a big deal, and some very major reporters in the New York Times wrote about how important it would be if fentanyl really is being described as a controlled substance, but is China really doing that? So we have to really go after the facts. I've been covering trade since... Ronald Reagan was, you know, fighting Japanese cars mm-hmm. and going to summits, you know, for 40 years on trade and covered NAFTA. So you have to know what you're talking about and know the background. And the business reporters got it before a lot of the other reporters. However, did. I would just say this was, this, it was better this time, but Trump has a pattern. And we all, you know, it's funny, when, it, when he announced, the, when he started announcing what they, what they were getting out of this chi dinner. Immediately, internally, we all said, remember, let's do your best to emphasize on the air that this is just from the White House. We don't know yet. Which you did. Be- because to and, this day has and, not and, confirmed right now, hasn't confirmed right. the fentanyl. And we've, I think, I'm pretty proud of us as a network because I feel like that we've basically once bitten twice. Mm-hmm. You know, once bitten, twice burned, right? It is, it, it, I know it's twice shy, but I was like, right. felt like I needed to say burn. <laughs> Doesn't work A little bit, burn. it didn't work as well. Um, it was, I used to say my favorite band in the 80s was Great White Lion Snake. All right, okay. discuss. Um, and um, now I've lost my train of thought. All right. Um, <laughs> you can cut this out of the podcast. Too much social media. It's too much social media. That's what, that, that, that's what it's Just done. cue the portal, Carol. Let it, let okay. it go. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to get to this next election and, and how you guys are looking at this now. The, the midterms sort of went pretty much as you all... Like except for some surprises here and there, and who did better and worse. How are you? How do you look at this coverage going forward, moving moving into the next election? Well, one of the problems we're going to have, as we already are, is the multiplicity of Democratic candidates is going to exceed even the seventeen that you know Hallie was thrown into the midst of, and we're going to have to field a lot of people, some of whom haven't covered. You know, politics. we're launching MSNBC eight. You know, MSNBC-9, MSNBC-10. So, I mean, so all of that and trying to figure out, you know, who's real, who's not real. And we shouldn't be weeding people out too soon, given our experiences last time around. Unless you're a lawyer from L.A. Unless, right. uh, right. But the other thing is, what is the effect on the Senate? You know, Chuck Schumer is already being pressured as 
Chuck pointed out on Twitter today by Jay Inslee and others who are putting pressure on Senate Democrats. And Nancy Pelosi is clearly going to feel the pressure uh, from candidates and, and on the border wall negotiations and how much can she compromise to avoid a government shutdown given that you know she's got a speaker election coming up. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much that is also affected by all of these candidates. Um, I think we have to, f and Chuck's the one in charge of it, and he's going to have to figure out as our political director. Um, so Chuck, how so are you going to do, do that? Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> oh, no, I think our challenge, I'm, I'm worried about multiple issues here. Obviously, number one, you have 34 candidates. That's what we, there are 34 candidates, and that doesn't include The Rock. Okay. Was, yeah. When I say there are 34 doesn't legitimate candidates, Avena Avenatti about it. dropped and it doesn't out include today. Avenatti. Well, luckily you know. for you, Mark and Cheryl will not be running. And they're not on there either. Okay. That's the point. These no, are 34. I know. Well, I, you're, are you sure? Yes, I'm, Cheryl? I'm sure. Yeah. I'm 100% sure. Guessing George Soros will work on that. No. Um, I can text her if you want. She's yeah. not running, but yeah. go ahead. No, I believe it now. That's yeah. my, my point. I think she, she made it harder on herself. Um, but I worry about that. I worry about the role the president is going, you know, unlike previous sitting presidents, this president is going to insert himself into the Democratic primary. He's going to want to be a pundit every night um, whenever there's a debate. Um, it is going to be imperative on us to be careful on how we cover those things. It's mm -hmm. important to know. And, and essentially, if Trump's tweeting about him, oh, why does he fear so-and-so or, you know, whatever. Like right. we, in the, the, same, the in the same way that he's tweeting a bunch about Mueller, don't tweet, don't report what he's tweeting, report that he is tweeting about X, you know, right. I think that's going to be a challenge. We're also going to have a sitting president who may get challenged in his own primary. That is going to be um, that is going to be an allure. That is going to be something we'll want to. And and this president, again, when the stove is on, he puts his hand on it and says, "Watch me." You know, he runs to the flame, right. and if he gets a primary challenger, he's going to want to debate his primary right. challenger. Right. It, who do you imagine it, that would be? I think it could be Ben Sass. I think it could be Jeff Flake. I think less Jeff so. Flake, I'm more convinced it'll be a Jeff Flake or a Ben Sass than I am a John Kasich. Mm -hmm. I think Kasich is trying to see if there is an independent avenue here. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I think he's going to conclude the way everybody else has. You know, it is the best way to reelect Trump. If you, you know, if you want to reelect Trump, run as an independent. Mm -hmm. um, but that I think, and that's going to be a challenge to us because. Mm -hmm. The Democratic nomination, you know, the, the Republican nomination isn't really going to be up for grabs, but the president is actually going to embrace the primary challenge just out of pugilism, mm -hmm. if you will. And, and frankly, I think he'll see it as an opportunity to almost to, to get, get attention some more attention. Right. I think it's going to be a challenge to the network executives. You know, we only have so much say editorially, but, the, you know, how much do you cover, you know, how much do you cover that primary versus that primary? How much attention, I mean... Um, and then also not falling into the trap of only covering the Democratic frontrunners, right? right? That's going to be without realizing that, hey, figure out a way. And I think, you know, I've got crazy ideas of trying to find ways of creating multiple nights for debates and multiple nights for forums so that you figure out a way to create a, an equal opportunity for candidates to have an opportunity to participate mm -hmm. Talking to voters. Ones, like now, a, that doesn't mean everybody would get the same amount of time, but there's got to be ways to create, and I think it's incumbent upon us in the press, in the media, uh, to give them more access to that airtime. So right. I think these are going to be some go of the. elsewhere and do it themselves. Like well, is it, some of them will. Doing, Bernie's going to do this. Bernie Sanders basically did his own little network this weekend mm -hmm. up, in, up in Burlington. In fact, I think even mm -hmm. 
webcast. Or you even if look I'm not at mistaken. Like a, a politician. I've been following. I mean, everyone's uh, obsessed with Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez, but she's fantastic on social media, like superb. Like, so what makes her so fantastic, right? And here's the answer that I, I think it's that people feel like she's extremely authentic. Mm-hmm. That she's like when she's cooking her mac and cheese with like her coffee stir. That Nobody like believes that. someone's doing it for her. Exactly. Well, she's that, doing right. it herself. And you know who else people thought that way about? Donald Trump, right? And so I think that as we move into the next two years, mm-hmm. the key thing that comes back to is authenticity. People, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I They thought the he was a real businessman who never mm-hmm. was bankrupt. They thought he, you know, right. was a billionaire who could save the government. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He, but I will he say a lot of those stories came out no, prior to the election. It was from The Apprentice from NBC News. That's the NBC, not news, but NBC Entertainment. And, Just, and NBC gotta, Entertainment. Entertainment. But not I NBC think they news. elected... And by the way, the put, that on, put that on the guy that runs CNN right now. I wasn't okay. He ran <laughs> NBC then. Come on now. But no, in no, fact, but you know, I do think they were electing Donald Trump of The Apprentice. What I undervalued about Donald Trump yeah. in the primaries mm-hmm. is that I had never watched The Apprentice. I had never watched reality TV. I did not know that he had millions and millions of fans out there. I didn't know that that base existed. I thought he was not a serious candidate. I did not know that the single most important and visited tourist attraction in all of New York City were people taking selfies in front of Trump Tower. Right. I always thought it was the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building or 30 well, This Rock. goes back to what I believe is the single biggest... People say, how did you guys miss this? And it's like, no, 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 no. We, I always say this with Trump. We knew him too well. We were like, well, please, he's been BSing us for years. He's the birther, whether New York or D.C. You know. Everybody's going to read in. Everybody's going to see yeah, through this guy. Purchase. I remember as a kid, you know, my dad going, oh, that guy's a clown. You know, he's just right. selling a book, bill of goods, be care, you know, yeah. whatever he's, you know. Um, and... And I think we all knew him too well. Yeah. And the rest of the country didn't know the Atlantic City failure, didn't know the USFL failure, didn't, didn't know. What they knew of him was just the fun kind of fun Guy curmudgeon that would yeah. be on The Apprentice and every once in a while on wrestling. Right. On, right. on, on, on WWE Raw. Don't, right. laugh. Don't, Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. The wrestling, I've been, I, the, the wrestling, the wrestling audience. Um, Liked him is a big is yeah. a was a Just big so you know, I watched, and he's brought uh, that into culture, the, he's brought that into the cabinet. I, I watched business. every episode of The Apprentice, which is why this lesbian why from you're... San Francisco thought he was going to win for a pearl. Okay. I, initially, I thought he was going to do better. Next time I'm interviewing you, and I was no, not at all. I was just sitting there going, "This guy's appealing in a way that's different." If you watched it, you could see that. So, and Holly, how do you? What do you think you need to do differently? So, I think the challenge for the people who cover the White House it. It is a pace that has that started off unrelenting in the campaign, that then turned unrelenting in the transition, and like has not stopped ever since that. You covered the beginning of the Obama years at the White House, which was crazy and intense in its own way, in its own very different way, right? So I think that for the correspondents who are sort of in the mix there at the White House, there's a couple of things to do, right? Number one, it's navigating sort of the the pace and the intensity of what we're seeing because to Chuck's point, this is a president who will be campaigning every day in the run up to 2020 because he loves it. Because he truly loves getting out of Washington, getting on the plane, going and landing, seeing thousands of people screaming his name at a hangar in the middle of some state, right, Wyoming. He loves it. And there's no reason for him not to do it because he has put an apparatus in place around him with the staff that knows that he likes it and is putting them in the position to do that. So I think that's that's one of the challenges. I think the other is navigating, um, you know, it's so interesting. People talk a lot about uh, the lack of briefings in the White House briefing room, which is true. Sarah Sanders, I think, uh, I might get this stat wrong, three since Labor Day, mm-hmm. which is and if I said that to you, like if, if Josh Ernest or Jay Carney did that, 
Right. The daily briefing is a I, monthly briefing. I, honestly, right. I, I, I you're, not gonna so get, you're not going to you're not going to hear supportive words from me about the daily because briefings. He, I, actually I don't, don't think, think they should be televised, but that's. So I don't. You know that I don't necessarily disagree with you on that. What I bring it up to do is to talk about the president's access on the South Lawn and in Oval Office sprays and in other instances where there is an opportunity to have interactions with him as reporters. And so I think that it is incumbent on myself my colleagues at NBC, my colleagues sort of in the White House press corps to make sure that you don't squander those opportunities. And I don't think we just do. Anywhere. Can I just say, yeah. I think the dumbest critique is the complaint about the press briefing when just what Hallie just said. Right. My God, we get more access right. to him on the South so Lawn. So be ready. And, right. you get, and you're getting it directly from right. the horse's mouth. We, right. uh, the I, the I, press I, I was, briefing is yeah, a waste it, of time. That's 100%. I, I mean, but, Olivia Nuzzi had like but 17 hours. I think we should get out of the White House, actually. And yeah. with, you know, they have to do what they do. Right. But we did, we have, and all the networks have done this. We've done it, I think, better than others. We have a new investigative, an expanded investigative team, I should mm -hmm. say, in the last two years. We've added tremendous depth. It's very well coordinated and led by, in New York, our mm -hmm. political and investigative teams. And we did a piece on Section 8 housing in Hartford, mm -hmm. an extraordinary lengthy piece on NBC Nightly News, which showed uh, what the firing of HUD inspectors has meant, what Ben Carson's led agency has really meant for the squalor of people who are still paying these contractors enormous amounts of money not to fix their houses. Now that's the kind of piece, we have to go agency by agency. We have to drill down on the EPA and the firing of scientists. We have to look at Zinke, and we've done a lot of and this. And do your bosses, do you think their bosses They are encouraging that, this, this is what so is. So the noise has made you more substantive? The noise and circus? Well, yeah, in fact, we have hired so many more people. There are more White House correspondents as well as producers. And the issue also, isn't coverage. It really yeah. isn't. The issue isn't coverage. The issue it's isn't made resources anymore. The problem is this, and it goes back to the old days of the newspaper. In the newspaper, you could read four stories at the same time <laughs> in some ways. You didn't read them at the same time, but they were all there. In television, you have to make a choice. You only can show one video at a time and one thing at a time. So I do think that if you look at NBC News holistically, we're covering every one of these stories in more in-depth ways and more substantively than we've ever done before. In and I do website. think sometimes we get judged too much just on what the cable chatter, right. um, which does follow you know, the story of the moment, um, but that doesn't mean there isn't, a, a, there isn't a whole bunch more out there. And I think the question is how do, we, how do you make that more consumer friendly so consumers demand it. Consumers sadly are not demanding it. No. And let's not like pretend that. that they are. Yeah. You know, this is always put on us and I always say, you know what? Um, if if you guys were right, PBS would have been number one a long time ago. All right. Okay. So I want to do a lightning round very quickly and then questions from the audience. But first, who do you then think right thinks right now has more power, social media or television anymore? I don't think it's television. That's my opinion, like, obviously. Here's the thing. The, what's interesting is they both, they, they, social media still needs the legacy media to be relevant mm -hmm. for their moments. Social media spreads what happens on TV news faster than TV news does now. Mm -hmm. And I guess is what I would say. But social media still needs the, resource, the resources of the le legacy media that actually does have the reporting, well, actually 90% of the reporting that social media talks about. But what's interesting there is I agree with you that social media is, is the quicker, um, but television is still the, will leave the lasting scar. Right. And a lot of what we're doing on television is, it's just a matter of platform. Mm -hmm. We are communicating by posting all of, the, of our content. 
on social media. So it's really a, a more integrated um, way of except, communicating. Except elsewhere, they don't. I just did a, a great podcast, and I urge you all to listen to it. Maria Ressa, who's just been arrested in the Philippines. I, I urge her not to go back, and she went back and was immediately arrested. Um, and one of the things she said was, she had tried to get Mark Zuckerberg to pay attention to a lot of the fake stories about her and, uh, and attack. She does a lot of corruption reporting, a lot of very deep investigative reporting. And she said something that I was super struck by. And she, she, was, she said, she told Mark Zuckerberg, 97% of the people get their news in the Philippines from Facebook. And his answer was, why don't we have the other 3%? Which I literally wanted to clock him when I heard that. I almost drove down to, down to their headquarters and hit him. Um, but one of the things that was interesting about that was she then said, what I want to say, I said, what would you say to him if you talked to him? He goes, we're a Facebook nation and you're killing us. So, which is kind of a really incredible, like, because everything occurs there, including fake news, and the government uses it, and now she's being arrested for false, under false, as a journalist being. So, so the power is there, but they don't, they don't, they push away the, the responsibility for the power. The tech companies? Yes. A thousand percent. The idea, that yeah. they're afraid of being called media companies because they know that they would, then the FCC would be regulating them already, and a more aggressive F. An FCC in a different administration would be. Do you think that should happen? I don't know that I. I, I don't know that I have an opinion on that right now. Okay, good. <laughs> Just, that. Frankly, because I, I think it's a more complicated question. Yeah, I mean, I'm the. So I say this to Chris Matthews. You brought me on to be a reporter, not a pundit. So, so that's right. what I'll do. But I do think to Chuck's point. There is a huge difference. I'm very struck by that, that statement you just said, right. 97%, why don't you have the other three? Right. One of the good things about what we do, there is a diversity of material and outlets and coverage, and there are right. options. People have options. Right. Any one of us may sit here and think that you're picking the wrong option right, at any given time, but it's your right to be able to do that. Right. And it's our challenge to be able to put content out there that is so effective and that grabs you that the consumer will turn to the coverage we want. I'll tell you what, I put that piece that Andrea talked about on HUD on my show, um, and gangbusters ratings, right? So I do think that there is an opportunity for some right. of that. It was a Swamp Watch segment. We called it like the ultimate Swamp Watch because it was. Right. Um, right. And so there no, is a place to do that. See, is, I think we underestimate the appetite of, for real in-depth reporting and that the investigative reporting should not only be on Mueller and all the rest of that. I think that there, there are a lot of other things happening. You know, climate. Um, you know, just... The way people live, mm -hmm. the way tariffs are affecting soybean farmers. I just want to dig and dig and dig more into the kinds of things we used to do in campaigns. We would start a campaign season with the Chuck Todd's predecessors saying, okay, let's do these issue pieces, housing, education, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. They actually got on the air. And then as news just became, as the velocity of what we do mm -hmm. became so extreme, these kind of shelf pieces could never get on the air. Right, exactly. So they have to be in the moment. They have to be pegged more to breaking news. I do think we have to how people do are dying for smart. I think that's yeah. a thing. All you have to do is look at the appetite for documentaries that's out there now. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I sort of just, I love it. It's sort of why, why it's, it's uh, look, I understand the television viewer, we're, we're fighting for a specific viewer. It's a business model and that's what you do. We obviously have more we want to get to, so that's why, what's, what's you know. What's each of your latest documentary I, first, I, then? What's that? Which one did you recently watch? I'm going to guess Clinton Affair. He did a whole. No, I haven't done a whole film, film festival. Film yeah. festival. We just did a film festival um, featuring a bunch of shorts um, that we've been doing, and, and the one that I thought was the one I was proudest of that that um, participated 
was one that was on the entire program, the idea of training teachers, um, uh, training teachers to, to have firearms. Um, what was great about it is that the documentary did it without taking a position, but showed, but once you went through the documentary clearly had a, it sort of, you, you followed this through and you couldn't come to any other conclusion other than this doesn't seem like a good idea. Mm -hmm. But, but, but the, but I thought it was done in such a way where it was right. the opportunity. It wasn't, it wasn't preaching at you and beating you over the head of how, what an idiot you are to think this is. It took everybody, it took it as a genuine way to do it. And so in that sense, that was one I encourage people, and I'm sorry if, if I can remember the name and I, well, I go to the Meet the Press website, we've got all of that in our showcase. I had, I did our one. Documentary showcase. Two that really What was it, Sarah? G is for guns. There it is. Well, Thank you. One of my producers, Sarah Black. One of my I, had, senior producers, I did Sarah one Black. on rape victims. Thank you, Sarah Where Black. rape victims just spoke directly to camera, and one of them was a child. And um, it was incredibly powerful. I still carry that with me. I then brought the directors um, and one of the victims onto my MSNBC show because it was so important to me to, you know, give them more opportunity because they, they hadn't sold it. They don't have distribution yet. These are experimental document, short documentaries that Chuck and his MTP team has really brought to the forefront and we're trying to give them exposure. And another was on the Amazon warehouses where these senior citizens, um, often people living in trailer parks, trying to put themselves mm -hmm. together because they never came back from the crash in 08. And they are trying to earn you know, uh, a couple of dollars an hour, really terrible wages, going to these distribution centers and the fact, the repetitive stress yep. injuries yep. for these people, they're in their 70s and sometimes 80s and they travel from one like distribution ones. centers to another because they've lost their homes and have never recovered yeah. from the crash. You I know, mean, it's, I, it's I, unbelievable. I hate to make it worse, but it's all gonna be replaced by robots. Sorry, I've been to a recent warehouse and they're gonna go all, there won't be any problems with that. There won't be any jobs, but that's another issue. Well, um, so Hallie, finish up and then I wanna go to the quick lane because we wanna get no, questions. All I was gonna say audience. is robots are gonna take over the world and this is why I don't have an Alexa. I refuse to have one in my house, that's all. <laughs> I believe you're gonna have a portal, it's gonna be great. Um, so. And they spy on you, don't they? <laughs> they all spy on you. Andrew, these people in Silicon Valley are the Borg. Try to keep that in mind and you'll understand everything. And they're the Borg without any social niceties. They never took a humanities course. And they didn't date. They dated. They date now. They date um, now. So um, it's, it's easier to date when you have plans. As, as my, if your social media site's based on the ability to go meet new, it, it, based on the ability that you couldn't figure out how to meet people, maybe it shouldn't become a multi-trillion That was actually company. not accurate. But that, that's not, was actually not accurate. Um, that movie was I'm only being accurate. sort of. Yes. It's, some, it's relatively accurate, but not completely. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, 
Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built for business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. All right, quick lightning round. Republican nominee for uh, President 2020? Quick. Uh, Trump or Pence. Oh, meaning? I'm just saying. <laughs> Look, I don't think, I think, uh, I think that a, a line you're going to hear a lot in the next nine months is, let's let the voters decide this. Mm -hmm. I do think that that is a phrase you're going to hear a lot of. Do I think there is a 1% chance he says, I'm out, and you just go with the, the, the Pence-Haley ticket that Nick Ayers has been dreaming of? <laughs> yeah, I think there's a 1% chance of that. I, w I would agree with that. I guess Haley, it wouldn't be Haley uh, at the top of the ticket, or would it? Well, if they want to win. If they want to win, it would be. Uh, I've covered her at the UN, and she's a really significant uh, fast learner on that and has been really adept at navigating. Um, I don't know what the percentage is of Trump not running for re-election, but I could see him getting fed up if things close in and if there's a lot of financial you know, baggage as well as family exposure. Yeah, uh, based on my reporting where we are in December of 2018, everybody is preparing for Donald Trump to run again. All right, Democratic nominee. You oh. can pick three. <laughs> pick three? Yeah. <laughs> I guess the three I would pick, if I could have three right now, would be Warren, Beto, and Harris. Those are the three I would want to have as, as sort of... Those are the three tickets I'd, I'd want to hold if I were in Vegas. And, and which one do you think is the... I think that... Warren is, I think Warren has the best chance of wrapping it up early because if she somehow could win Iowa, she wins New Hampshire, and trust me, this thing would get over faster than, than maybe many Democrats would want. And I know they've changed the rules to try to slow it down, and yes, it would get slowed down a bit, but there's a reason why a whole bunch of Massachusetts people have become nominees of major parties. The, 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 media, the, the, the winning the New Hampshire primary matters, especially if you do it back, if you do it and you've won Iowa too. That is, ask John Kerry. It ended 
ended a race that literally looked like he was dead in the water two weeks earlier. So that's why I think Warren is somebody that could, I don't think Warren can win a long drawn out primary. So that's why she's one of my three. Um, look, somebody, Beto to me is the placeholder for now of the total outsider that could come in and capture the imagination. And I think if it's a long drawn out fight, and let's say there's no outsider, I think Kamala Harris has much more juice. If Beto sort of doesn't run, she's the person that could put together a coalition that was a little bit of the Beto world and a little bit of the young establishment. Interesting that none of the older candidates are on your... Elizabeth Warren would, well, is, Warren. is in her 60s. Yeah, but we're not talking about the 70s. We're not talking about <laughs> Joe uh, Biden. Well, My issue with okay. Bi Bernie and Biden is right. that the Bernie problem Biden they got... Bloomberg. Bernie, Bernie Biden and Bloomberg with John Kerry. Don't forget John Kerry, yeah, that's well, right. John Kerry was sort of teasing the other day and was asked about it and said, well, I'll, you know, I'm not going to talk about that. I guess he deflected at Harvard, but then he said, well, Joe Biden is, of course, my good friend, et cetera, but he said the person I think you should look at is a Democrat turned Republican, now a Democrat, Mike Bloomberg, mm -hmm. who does have a lot of chits with these young Democrats he helped elect. That said, I don't think he's a good retail candidate. Let me I just go simple here. Biden and Bernie start out one, two in all the polls. And they have all the name, early name recognition. Their problem for them is they only will go down the first six months of the campaign. They don't get to go up. That creates a negative perception, negative momentum. If Joe Biden can figure out how to get into the race in December of next year, if he can hold off the entire year before he has to get in, then that's the path for Biden. The problem, and I think they know this, Problem for him is, how does he enter as the front runner and, and basically watch 40 years of his political life get litigated uh, in ways that will not make him look good? There is every factor here. Every I would just say Beto, I think, is right now the placeholder for someone who could become the next Obama. And Obama just met with him, we learned, yeah. uh, back here in D.C. And Kamala Harris is, is really interesting. I would just, somewhere on a ticket, I would throw in Amy Klobuchar. Yes. Who's a serious person. Has I think a she's the most electable woman running. Yeah. And next door to Iowa, Minnesota, et cetera. Right. I think that most of the names that have been mentioned, the, the Trump campaign would be licking their chops, praying that one of these people you just named would run because they feel like they would have a chance. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I do think that there are certain people who scare them, and it's the, the Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Sherrod Brown-esque field because they Ohio. know that they can take it to Trump in some of those states that Trump, that Donald Trump did very well in. And so I think that that is from just talking to folks in that world, what, what gives them the shakes. I'd tell you, I think Amy Klobuchar is the best, probably the best, most electable of that bunch. The problem that I'm curious with Klobuchar and with Sherrod Brown um, and with Biden, I said with Biden, how do you get through the primary by preaching moderation? And it's not to say Amy Klobuchar is not progressive. And it's not to say Sherrod Brown's not progressive, but they both come from, an, from the school of politics that says, you know, you're going to work with the other side every now and then. You're going to have these. And, and they also have this horrible first name. Their first name is Senator, right? That's also, that's also going to be a problem for, for any of them. But what I'm trying to figure out is how, if you don't inspire passion in the base, how do you get this nomination this year? Yeah. I, I don't think Democrats yeah. this time are going to say, just find us the most electable person. I don't think they're All going to. All right, there. lastly, since I just interviewed her, Hillary. She kind of left it out there in our interview. I, I, do you remember when Gary Hart got back in? No. Okay. 
Do you remember when Gary Hart got back yeah. in? Watch the movie. I'm going to enjoy the Hugh Jackman movie. But uh, I, I always hate going to things that I remember living through. And I, it's a, I haven't done the Annie doc yet because mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't want to relive it yet. Um, but when Gary Hart got back in, he did it the way Bill Clinton described it, that described what Hillary's campaign would look like. Oh, there'd be no consultants. It was literally Gary Hart and a driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was humiliating. Watching him drive around Iowa, do you remember that? Getting that 1% desperate to get in, and you're like, and, and it was the way he went about it, and I, and I think he, he had, it was personal pride for him, I get it. I thought it diminished him in a way that was unfair. Like, you know, forget the, the affair, that whole thing, we can, that, that's a separate conversation, separate debate. Seems quaint now. Right? I think if she does this, I just, I think they totally underestimate the venom that's out there among many Democrats about her and about I, them right yeah, now. I agree. Fair or not fair, um, she had her best chance in 2016. She made... I disagree that her best chance... Was 08. No. I think her best chance to be president was 04. All right. I will always go to my great believe in that. All right. But I think, I think she had her opportunities. And for whatever happened externally from Comey and the Russians and a lot of other things and the unfairness of the media, the conventional media, putting so much attention on Trump and squeezing out the legitimately serious stuff she did, um, I think that the, there were enough mistakes that were self-inflicted, not just the server, but her reaction to the server, the defensiveness, the inability to come up with credible explanation quickly, which goes back, I think, decades to when I first started covering her and she was traumatized by that 92 campaign, what happened in New Hampshire, and you know, legitimately frightened by the intrusiveness of the draft dodger, Jennifer Flowers, that whole awful New Hampshire introduction to the national stage. And I think that that created in the White House, a, um, a tendency to not be transparent, to cover up with her health care plan and all the rest of it, and the unfairness of a lot of the editorials, you know, who killed Vince Foster, number one? Who killed Vince Foster? They were accused of murder. Yeah. And, no, I get you know, it. It was horrible. I, I think and, if the Clintons killed, 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 killed people, Anthony Weiner would be dead, and he's not. Right. So, so I'm just saying... It is their best character witness. (laughs) It's their best defense against the murder charge. I'm just saying that for all of the reasons that we all know, there's just too much anger out there in the Democratic Party against her. Whether she she runs again in 2020 or not, and I think all signs are that she she won't, right? Donald Trump will put her on the ticket in some way. She hasn't gone away. I've been hearing about Hillary Clinton from Donald Trump for four years now, and it's going to be another four coming up. Agreed. It's an old hit for him. It's an old, old, oldie but good, well, baddie, and unfortunately for her. Questions from the audience? We have about 10 minutes, quickly, right here. Here, here, grab this. There's been a lot of uh, negative sentiment towards technology companies tonight um, across the board. Are there some positives of either what technology companies are doing or some companies that get it? Um, I, I agree. I, I hate the portal. I think it stands everything wrong. You don't want it, do you? I definitely do not want it. It's um, like the Zoom, except evil. <laughs> Remember the Zoom? But hey, the Zoom allowed you to delete individual songs. Okay. That is something that it drove me nuts. The original iPod. Anyway, did. go ahead. Is there anything so, positive? So, so are, are there are there yes. some good technology companies or yes. initiatives that are going on today? Hundred percent. Super briefly. Uh, look, the people at. People at Apple and Microsoft and other places are horrified 
what's going on with Facebook. Because like, basically they're getting dragged into this. And they, you know, Apple's got their issues around manufacturing. They've got some issues around um, addiction and things like that. It's not fully their problem, but it's an issue. But they're sort of mature people running that company who are just, and I, I interviewed Tim Cook, and when I said, what would you do if you were Mark Zuckerberg? And he said, I wouldn't be in this situation, which <laughs> caused Mark to have everyone move He's really, does, He's good. does Tim not like Mark at all? No, he does not like him at all. <laughs> Second and only to Travis Kalanick. Um, but uh, but uh, Tim never breaks a face except with those two. And then he's like, like highly emotional. Um, but, but I think there's some... Airbnb. The guy who runs Airbnb, Brian Chesky. What an astonishing young man he is. He did a lot. He went out very far on the limb around immigration. He just did it around homelessness. Um, he's thinking thoughtfully. And they've got, of course, every company has issues, but there's someone like that. And that's a really innovative and interesting company. I think it is. I do think um, Uber's better with Dara, although they have a huge amount. Dara Khosr Shahi. Um, I think that... Um, you know, Aaron Levy at Box is interesting. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of different... Uh, there's not that many, are there? Um, but there are. There's, there's companies like that, that are, through no fault of their own. I, I just did a, a special with Mark Benioff, uh, who, uh, who was doing a lot with homelessness and sort of shaming all these billionaires and handing over some of their filthy dough. Uh, and I like him for that. I like him. So, yeah, there's a, and there's a lot of really interesting technologies, but the issues they're dealing with going forward... AI, and there, there's five of them. There's AI, self-driving, changing in trades and transportation, robotics, um, and uh, there's one more. There, there's, there's a bunch of them that are really serious, and I think they're going to change society really dramatically. It's, it's not about dating apps anymore. These are massive technological changes that are coming that are disturbing to our society in a way that I think we haven't fully grokked. And I think the people, if you know the people in charge, like right now AI... 97% of the developers are white men. I don't mean to be rude, but crap in, crap out. Like, sorry, that's going to be a problem, right? So they've got to think about these issues. So I think they just don't think about them, and they, they also think they're really good people. You know what I mean? They, like, do that to you all the time, and then we have the Russia situation and stuff yeah. like that. Um, anyway, any thoughts on tech? Any tech people you like? I think you said it. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you like? Fitbit. Fitbit's real nice. Whatever. <laughs> Sure. I use it to tell me how little sleep I'm getting. I really? mean, the whole point was to discipline myself. Yeah. Do you go off the screens? Do you like? Do you like? Uh, do you feel yourself addicted? You, you definitely well, are. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do. I, I do two things though. Now I don't. I, I don't Chuck the mic. I don't keep my phone at my bedside anymore. Oh, I don't um, either. I, I've I've moved it a floor down. I've moved it down and down to. Uh, wow! If, what if NBC know, is calling you? They in the call my. Night? I, I still have a landline, <laughs> and sadly, sadly, the desk figured that out on Saturday morning when okay. President Bush passed away. Yeah. Um, I got the one a.m. phone call, and you know what? Landlines still work too if they really have to get a hold of you. That's true. But I've done that simply because I have not liked the amount of sleep I was getting, and there's too much. The minute you look at the light yes. at one thirty in the morning, you can't. Stop. You're out. It's yep. that, that's an hour. Well, there's also it's take an hour to undo it. The screens themselves yes. are. I'm going to teach you all. I'm going to teach you all about grayscale later. But um, <laughs> next question, right here. Yeah, your thoughts on how the White House intern tried to grab the microphone from Acosta and yeah. the ensuing legal Yeah, what battle. are your thoughts on that, Hallie? Were you, you take there, Miss Jackson? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, that was a moment, right? So I'll say what I've said um, 
I think publicly about this before and that I think I've said privately to the people sitting on the stage as well, is that there are multiple things that can be true, right? Because this was another story where there was a discussion about, is it worth covering? Should we talk about it? Is this too navel-gazy? And I do think that's a valid concern for members of the press, right? Nobody wants to be talking about themselves all the time when you're the story. But a couple of things can be true. It can be true uh, that not all reporters behave the same way in the same setting. It can be true uh, that the White House vastly overreached when they tried to strip Jim of his credentials. And it can be true that we would have needed to put up a united front to say that that is not okay. And all of those things can be true at once, and I think in this instance, they were all true at the same time. And I think ultimately the situation got resolved in that Jim ended up in the briefing. I saw him overseas in Argentina where he was asking questions of the president about policy and politics and the questions that any one of us would have asked as well. Um, and so I think that that was a moment that put the press and the White House at a sort of flashpoint, this like clash point. We've had a lot. There have been a lot of flashpoints in this administration. That was probably the biggest and most impactful one. Um, and I think our coverage, I was really pleased with NBC and MSNBC's coverage because I thought it was sort of the right tone, not hysterical, didn't ignore it. It was sort of the right sort of level for that. So um, I think the White House has received a message loud and clear from the courts that this is not acceptable. There's a lot of talk about these new rules that are in place. I haven't seen them put into action and I don't know that we ever will. And the one person I don't think you can blame is an intern when told by the President of the United States to do something in a public setting. I mean, you can't blame her for anything that happened yeah. in that instance. Yeah, it still was ugly. And they, that's why they like it. That's the way, that's the fight they wanted. With the Jim, people don't get called on by nobody for no reason. Yeah. Somebody yeah. points at you and says, right. ask your question. Uh, right here. We're gonna, we can't get to all of them tonight um, unless these guys want to stay. But I they've think got you reporting to do. I think you would all agree more than ever, there's so much great journalism going on right now, but there's a large group of the population that's kind of shut themselves off from that, and you know, the president loves that. How do the press and the media re-engage those people to have common shared facts again? Wait, I, look, this is the, you know, I know 40% of the country's tuned us out. I say this all the time. And I'm like, my whole goal on Sunday mornings, and frankly, still at 5 p.m. on MSNBC, is to try to, to make the show accessible to everybody. I think, for instance, you know, I get a little heat on MS, because I'm the show that's, Andrea and I, and all three of our shows in particular, but I'm at a time where there's not a lot of Republicans on the air. I'm not, a, meaning, I, not me, the person is Republican, but I book Republicans, yes. my guests, in the, in, in when, when I'm on. But the reason is, I think you add credit, I think it's important, for instance, and I read a study of this that on Trump fact checks, Republicans fact check, correcting the president was more credible to his, to, to his supporters than a member of the press doing it. Of course. So, which, you know, right? It's somebody, oh, he's in my tribe. And in, he's a member of my tribe, and he's telling me that the president has his facts wrong on trade. So, you know, one of the, you know, I think that it is important, and it is important, I think, for that 40% to hear from people that they may trust, saying, hey, this stuff is important, this stuff is true. That's one small thing. Um, in, in some ways, I think that that's been, I think that trying. One thing we can't do is tell them how stupid they're being. And I, and, and, and I think that that is, is talking, talking down 
is is not the way to do it. So I think to you know I think that's one one way. And the other is is one of the things I I think we ought to point out when when people are disseminating disseminating false information on purpose and why they're doing it, whether it's happening in prime time on another cable channel. Um, which one's that? Or not. Yeah, yeah. Which one could I be talking to? Which one? I can't remember. Rhymes with Vox. Like, rhymes with Vox. Um, okay. um, but you know, mom's here, for, so just to, just to follow up on that, um, Pat Toomey, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania, came on to talk about the steel and aluminum tariffs that the president initiated to try to win that Connor Lamb, dis, you know, a special election in Western PA, 120,000 steel workers. And he came on my show to talk about how there were more jobs that they were losing in Pennsylvania among manufacturers who use the raw materials than the 120,000, and he was against those tariffs. And that interview and others are the way that is, as Chuck says, the best way to fact check some of the false pronouncements about tariffs. Okay, all right. Uh, let me do, sorry, two more questions there. And over there, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These guys have to go. They have work to do. Great discussion. Thank you. Um, as you sit in your planning meetings, um, you clearly know that or feel that Trump is playing you. And in my view, from what I work at, um, you know, certainly he is. He wants the engagement. He doesn't even care about the quality. He just wants it. So uh, it, it may be a preposterous thing to ask. I mean, you can't pass, per se. You can't ignore him. That's not possible. But do you talk at all, do you think at all about the possibility of figuring out how to accelerate him? Use, how to do what? Accelerate him. Rather than try to stop him or block him or use, use the usual rhetorical methods, can you use counterintuitive approaches to say, to, to make him be even more than he is? Is that something you think about? I'm not sure I understand, I understand that. I don't understand that. To make him more he than... Is a, he is theoretically his, his own worst enemy. His ideas are untenable. Um, you know this. As reporters, you know it all stinks. So can, can you, rather than try to say, it's not like this, it's not like that, can you figure out production-wise how to, how to make him even more to say, well, tell So you're saying to that. take his sort of, like, okay, let's take him. So let's say he gets to 25 billion and you build this wall. What does this wall actually look like? Yes. So sort of take him at his, yes. um, go down that road, give go down him. the road, sort of take the absurd premise and take Let it all the, the way. Fish run, give yeah. him the leash, et cetera. Yeah. Wow, more Donald Trump. What do you, you know? think? <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> well, I mean, the problem with there is then, then we're, we're in the, Living in a then are we world, right? actually airing potentially fake, Future news, yeah, yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like what? What? I, I don't know what that would. I, I get. I get what you're saying. Like you want to. You realize if that were true, then this, this, and this would be true. I guess if he's doing one exaggeration by and and. Well, it's just that since, since you can't look, I'll, I'll tell you this. I got Scott Walker. I, I, when Scott Walker was running for president, um, he talked that about that actually happened. Didn't yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, everybody talks about the southern border, but during 9-11, have you ever thought about, you know, I said during 9-11, you know, one of the, you know, there was, or there was the, the, the stopped bombing in Seattle, mm -hmm. the, 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 the terrorists came through the northern border. Mm -hmm. And I think he said, well, maybe we ought to look at a wall there too. Mm -hmm. And it ended, it sort of, Dude. right, so that goes to your point where you sort of, you say, all right, so you want to build a wall, you, you want to have a barrier down here, well, why just down there? 
Actually, the most famous stopped terrorist attack was a terrorist coming over the northern border. Right. If, if it is over national security. So I guess that's taking your idea and saying, okay, well, that's your idea. Well, then why, why not for... But, is that what you're proposing? I'm asking if you even think about that. Well, I mean, much. I'll tell you what we think about more is how not to accept the migrants are coming, the caravan is coming, and how not to get swept away in this exaggerated response mechanism I mean, that we have to moderate. I do, though, have to take it seriously when the president on Twitter at 8.40 on a Monday morning fires the Secretary of State on Twitter. You know, I can't not report that. I or cover the State Department. calls himself a tariff man and the Dow drops 800 points, right? right. To, so, to come full circle in the conversation of should you take his tweets seriously or not. Right. Okay. Uh, last question, which is right here. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Hi. Um, so a question that comes up a lot is whether or not social media is good for democracy. And no. they're obviously. <laughs> yeah, and um, I knew these people before they were billionaires, and I can tell you no. Okay, yeah, there, I was um, gonna say there are obviously two sides to it. I think one side obviously kind of outweighs the other one, but um, I'd like to know uh, what your views on it are and the reasoning. I, I look, I, I mean, we, we bashed social media. I mean, let's. Social media is an opportunity. In, in repressed societies. I mean, you know, the beauty of technology has been we've been able to per perhaps find out what's happening in some repressed societies, right? And it's given them a, a potential outlet. Perhaps in Cuba, it's given them a potential outlet in certain places. So, Iranian um, election in 09. So, it, right, it was the only way we could cover it was via sort of these back doors of, of, of social media. But that feels, that's the answer I would have given five years ago. And I'm guessing, Kara, you would have said, oh, yeah, five years ago I there was a lot of more. I'm going to quote Jaron Lanier. Which the good seemed to, yeah. better than the bad. Now, since these regimes are so good at manipulating social media right, exactly. and using, look at what they're doing with WhatsApp these days, too, in some of these places where right. WhatsApp becomes a source of every horrible rumor in these right. third world banana republics these right. days. Um, I'm struggling now. The, what, it was the access to the ability to broadcast, which is the great um, freedom, freedom tool of social media, okay? The ability to broadcast, the ability to get your message out there. That is the positive. The negative has been the fact that we haven't been able to figure out how to stop a propagandist. I mean, let's, right. do, I, I'm, I'm into high, I'm, I call it the White Castle, and I always have to say High Castle. Uh, I've been to the High Castle show, okay? And, I just sit there and think about this all the time um, of, of the sort of what would Hitler have done with this technology? And you can't help what would, forget Hitler, what would him, what, you know, what would, the, what would the, the actual propagandists have done with this? So there's two things. Um, these people who are running these things are not, are, it's bigger than they have become. But what, three things I would put in mind. The Russians did not hack Facebook. They used it as customers of the way it was built. It is being used the way it was built. What a great reminder. It's 100%, 100%. They did not hack it. it later they had hacking, but, um, but it, was, it was not hacked. Two, um, this is, Jaron Lanier, I recommend you listen to a podcast with him or read his book. This, he's, he loves technology, so do I. But this is the greatest experiment in human communication in history. And it turns out human beings are awful. 
and that we are not capable of it right now. I mean, it really, we really truly aren't capable of the power that this is, that this is unleashed. And, and the people that are running these companies were not elected, and they are nation states. They are, na they are nation states, and they're incapable of doing it. Most of them not malevolently, by the way, FYI. They're not. They're not like... No, it's out of their control. Like you it's said, it's out of their control. And then lastly, go, go look at some interviews with the people who did the Egyptian, uh, the, the Arab Spring. Yeah, I'm writing a debate on it actually right now, so this is really helpful for me. The I'm guy who you. organized Thank it, you. yeah. The guy who organized it is not happy with what happened. Um, and so I think it's really important to um, think about that there's one person who controls the most important communications system on the planet and he didn't finish college, and nor did he have any humanities courses, nor does he want responsibility for what's happened. And so I hate to beat up on a nice boy like Mark Zuckerberg, but he should not be in charge of this. For the love of God, trust me, I'm telling you. Like, and again, you can, you can mix the personally lovely person, which he, by the way, is, from the responsibility that it brings. And our government, which these guys cover, is fully incapable of understanding or legislating it or regulating it. And that's Just the look back at those hearings. Yeah, the hearings, yeah. All right, final thoughts? Hallie, you feeling good about it? Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Can't you go to Chuck for this one carrot? No, I, I, let, me just, I, let me just end on maybe like a sli slightly lighter note, you okay. know what I mean? Because I do think that there is... I am a bit of a Pollyanna, like I get right. that, right? But I do think that there is some good that technology brings to our lives. And I think that the biggest thing is that it is the double-edged sword of connectivity, right? Right. Baseline human communication. But it is a way that I'm able to talk to all of you and to communicate with the people in a way that we never have been able to do. I wasn't able to do, and I was in local news 12 years ago, that Chuck wasn't able to do, and Andrew wasn't able to do when, when their careers first started. And that's a good thing. And so I am in a small way, while we've crapped all over social media tonight, like grateful for that one piece of it. I would just wish that people would, would glory in the diversity of what's out there and not just find their niches and find, that, and that's the same in cable as well and in all kinds of platforms. We don't have a national conversation and we don't come together the way we have in moments of crisis and moments of joy uh, often enough. And I miss that. And I just wish people would keep their minds open longer. I'll just, if we're going to say nice things about social media, my favorite thing to do is to, it, it's the great answer key. Hey, I'm getting this weird message on my car. Does anybody else own a this? And, and I'm telling you, you get the answer. I mean, in some ways, that's like, that's crowdsourcing. Like, my favorite part of social media is when you crowdsource an answer. Right. Um, and that's when it's like, that's cool. I now have been able to connect with, the, with a whole bunch of people that have sort of a similar issue that I have in trying to clear this drain pipe or all this stuff. So I actually, that's the part of this I wish we'd go back to with social media when we right. were all just sort of, Learning, you know, crowdsourcing. It's just a thing. Don't be an asshole. That's it. Like, that's the key to all. All right. And on that note, Hallie Jackson, thank you, Hallie. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Kara. Thank you.